This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 17th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The libertarian student movement has grown by leaps and bounds, so where does it stand today? And just how bad is the intellectual climate on campus? And what is the intellectual basis for campus-based opposition to the freedom of speech? Wolf von Lehr is president of Students for Liberty. We spoke earlier this month. Ten years ago, there was no Students for Liberty and they, there was not an international network of students working towards the ideas of liberty, i.e. free speech, free markets and um, working to like a more just and free society. Of course, there were student groups and even some with a very, very lengthy history in places like Belgium and all around the world, and including the United States. However, they were not very organized. And I think that Students for Liberty has done a very good job on that in the last 10 years to build really a unified forum for all of these different groups. And we are now active in over 100 countries. Active meaning that we have a student in a country, for instance, Venezuela, for instance, the United States of America or Lithuania, who has applied to our programs, who then went through a thorough application process, got accepted and then trained online and in person. That means that we have somebody on the ground that we know and that we know is actually doing things. What do you see as the impact of uh, young people uh, fighting specifically for the advancement of liberty? The the, the uh, icons that I can really think of, uh, Kim Kataguri, uh, among others, in uh, Brazil, I mean, it, it were instrumental in having a president removed from office. But where else do we see uh, the impact of, of young people fighting Sometimes on the streets, sometimes in newspapers, sometimes with memes, uh, fighting to advance liberty. Absolutely. So very often, like we look at people like Kim Kataguri because he had such an impact, but there are thousands of people behind him. And Brazil is still one of our strongest regions, including also like the United States and, and Europe. And he brought 100,000 people on the streets with his YouTube channel, with his, the arguments that he has made for a freer society, a less corrupt Brazil. And that is certainly the case. However, he had the help of, of really literally hundreds of different people behind him. And many of them we have trained and we follow those individuals after they uh, finished university. And there will be elections in Brazil for, for their Senate and, and Congress earlier this year. And we know that many people are running. We already have now many success stories where people have been uh, have become successful mayors in, in Brazil. But we also have evidence for that to be like in the case in, in for the United States. We have people who founded nonprofits and they continue to advocate for the ideas of liberty. Actually, our alumni have founded thus far, and we try to get a, like a better grasp on that, over 20 nonprofits in the United States and all around the world. Some people fo focus on the academic ideas, some of the policy ideas, some try to get like pundits into the media, like Young Voices here in the United States, which Students for Liberty has incubated. So we are trying to get a better grasp on that in terms of success stories. And we have like a section on our website, which is called Success Stories, where we follow these individuals, not only what they're doing on campus now, which matters, which is actually activism, which gives them a lot of useful skills. But our theory is that we have to empower young people so that they can change campuses today, but society in the future. And this might be within business, within the think tank world, and all kinds of other segments of society. And we need to try to capture those activities better. What do you think are some of the biggest threats to uh, free speech right now? I know students are, young people in particular, you know, they are entering a world in which they observe norms, 
they observe how people are allowed to speak and they act accordingly. Uh, where do you see the threats to free speech and, and young people maybe not quite realizing, for example, how truly exceptional the United States is with respect to protecting speech? Absolutely. And the ideas that you find on campuses nowadays, which are very much anti-free speech, are thus far, from what I can see internationally, uniquely um, president here in the United States. And our students are focusing on that a lot. Like we have hundreds of events every year. Last year we had over 500 events with over 30,000 attendees. And many of these events, especially in the United States, focuses on free speech because it's so important. And I know that Cato and many other organizations are focusing on that as well. And that is good. However, what I would like to criticize the libertarian movement, but also maybe like the the right in general, also Republicans, is that very often we fail to fully understand where these ideas come from and what thinkers are behind that. Because I see many students being active and advocate for free speech on campus. However, they fail to realize that free speech is not a value of the left anymore. So they say like, look, listen to us, listen to us and, and believe in free speech. And I say like, no, free speech is anti actually antithetical to the goals that we have. And mm -hmm. Well, you, 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 uh, I want to push back a little bit. When you say that uh, free speech is no longer a value of the left, now I can understand some, some people who were once hardcore leftists. I'm thinking of uh, former or now deceased Cato senior fellow Nat Hentoff was a very active uh, leftist who promoted uh, unfettered free speech. He was a free speech absolutist. And so I, I think there are those people exist and they consider themselves as being from the left. But to the extent that you're talking about movement politics or um, party politics, you know, free speech may be something of a convenience for one group to adopt at a particular time. Uh, and place. Yes, thank you so much for this clarification. I was thinking about the left as it manifests itself on campuses today. You might want to call it like the new left, but I mean, all of these labels are always um, somewhat blurry. But you're right. There are many people on the left, including in the media and in academia, who see that this um, behavior of many students nowadays and this curtailing of free speech is actually very bad. And they argue against that and I applaud them for, for this. And we work with many um, of them together. So for instance, every month we have a meeting with all kinds of groups um, who are doing activism on campus. And there are dozens of them now in DC. And sometimes journalists from the left are coming and also want to learn about what they can do in order to spread um, yeah, the First Amendment on campuses again and trying to understand the problem more. So, so thank so, you for that clarification. So you, yeah. So, so what do you think are uh, that libertarians, uh, conservatives, what do they not understand about the origins of the arguments against a, an unfettered free speech? Yes. So one thing that I don't see being discussed so much in our circles would be the ideas of Marcuse and his specifically his article on repressive tolerance. It's an article that was written in the 1960s and it really opened up my eyes for the situation on campuses because coming from, the, from Germany and having lived in Europe, um, I did not fully understand what was going on on campus in the United States until I came here and, and live here now. And I've read that essay and it's only 15 pages and I can try to give you like a simplified argument what's what's in there and how people are interpreting that on campuses right now. His argument is that free speech 
has not really helped oppressive groups. You can look at the 1960s and say like all of these protests, like they didn't lead anywhere and you still have oppression nowadays. While yes, there is still oppression nowadays, it has helped a lot, but that's not what, what they see. And they still still systematic oppression within society and they want to go against that. They want to help oppressed groups. They want to have like a more equal society. So, so in a sense, it is the idea that free speech is a tool when it's useful and when it's not useful, it's something that we don't care anything about or shouldn't care about. It, I, I think it goes even further. Free speech is only useful if you have free speech about the ideas that, that we care about. <laughs> so, like, Marcuse likes free speech as long as it's his ideas. And that is really, really dangerous. So his argument goes further. And unfortunately, it is logically coherent. It's misguided and it's wrong, but it's logically coherent. It goes like the following. He says that free speech is actually a tool towards oppression because free speech gives power to um, disproportionate power to the people who are in in charge of society, so to speak, meaning politicians, media, uh, maybe people in think tanks, church, all kinds of facets of society. And these individuals have free speech rights and so have to oppress groups. However, it gives these people a disproportionate for, uh, disproportionate soapbox, so to speak, um, to spread their ideas. And their ideas, he says, they will be mostly about the status quo and will be mostly focused on continuing to oppress the people. And therefore, you need to break out of that. Free speech in itself cannot solve that problem because it leads to one group having more influence over the others. He assumes, of course, that there's like homogeneous preferences about like how power should be distributed in society. And many now modern authors connect that with the idea of whiteness and most people in power are white and therefore like they want to oppress like people of color, etc. Uh, but that is his argument in a, in a nutshell, and that leads then to activists to say like, yeah, free speech doesn't work anymore. We don't want to have deba debates with the right or with people we don't agree with. We want to shut them down because that's what is needed in order to just have the ideas float around that leads to an equal and prosperous society as they define it. All right. So um, what then is the correct approach? You say that uh, libertarians and uh, conservatives sort of uh, misunderstand how deep uh, this conviction uh, is, but what? how do you combat that? First and foremost, we have to understand where they're coming from and we have to understand the ideas. I'm not saying that most leftists on campus really have read Marcuse. I don't think that is the case. Like this phenomenon is fairly recent and it came about through social media mostly in 2014 and afterwards on like websites like Tumblr. And that's how most people like get their... I'm not even sure if you want to call that arguments, but just like the sense that you can be righteous if you stand up for oppressed groups and if you try to shut down everyone that does not agree with you. And it is a first step in the right direction if, if like classical liberals and libertarians and conservatives understand where these ideas come from, because then you can argue against it. For instance, you can say that in many instances, free speech actually has helped a lot of oppressed groups. I mean, there were back in the day majority views that euthanasia was a good thing in the United States, in, in, in the UK, but also in Germany and many other countries. However, these ideas are gone and it's because like people have spoken up against it. Uh, furthermore, also, I don't think the world has seen so much rapid change in terms of societal ideas as in terms of LGBTQ and also gay people and that they're like much more tolerated. And of course, it's not perfect and many parts of the world still see like a, a lot of discrimination on that and it's, it's not something that is done overnight. But we can see how free speech has contributed to that and giving like arguments like that will 
definitely help. Also, another danger with the Marcusean idea is that it fast leads to means of, of societal change which are dangerous, meaning that people want to use violence in order to shut down people that they disagree with or that hurt your feelings. And we have seen that. What do you think of, what do you think of the idea of people who try to make equivalent or at least minimize the distinction between speech and violence. I think that is fundamentally dangerous, but I, you can see now, I think with the Marcusean argument, like where this comes from. And they say like, words can hurt, and therefore it is the same as pain, and therefore we need to defend ourselves, and we can defend ourselves with using violence. And that's their argument, and we have seen some people taking it on. I think it's just a small minority and very often these people can actually come from outside the campus and try to steer things up um, for reasons. Um, but I don't think that like a majority of people take that on. But I think we need to argue against that. And we have to understand that our ideals, for instance, the Enlightenment, is something that the new left, as we have defined it now, is really against. And we have to be careful what kind of words we are using and trying to um, convince others. Because if we say, like, look, you have to read Adam Smith and, and believe in the ideas of the Enlightenment, and they react ne very negatively against that, then they will not listen to us. But there's also evidence, and we have to present that also, why violence often leads to opposite results, that government will be like more oppressive and will actually curtail, curtail more of the freedoms of the people that the violent people try to help. And there are many cases throughout history that you can also uh, mention along, along those lines. But if we don't understand all of these lines of arguments, then we cannot tackle them effectively. That's, that's my whole point. In your experience, what has been the the reaction uh, or response or act activism uh, among young people, among students for liberty, uh, with respect to the election of, of Donald Trump? Hmm. So I think the election of Donald Trump and the lack of civil discourse that we see in Congress is, or in society reflects what is happening on campus. So people don't talk to one another anymore. They just think that everyone who likes Donald Trump is evil and vice versa. And that is not very conducive to try to figure out like the best policies or how to guide society. Um, Peter Böttke always uses these um, very important phrase about that you need to like to bump and bargain as a society. There's always a constant flux of ideas and competition and trial and error. And all of these tools that we know as classical liberals are very important to us, a better market, but also a better society. That is necessary. But if people don't exchange ideas and don't um, engage in civil discourse, that is highly problematic. And we see that reflected on campus. Let me give you some negative examples of how this manifests itself and some positive examples. Some negative examples are that we had people organize event um, in upstate New York, one of our students there, with an advisor to the Trump administration. And the purpose was specifically to have more civil discourse and to provide a platform where people who are critical of Donald Trump and the regime could ask this particular individual many different questions. They have accomplished that. However, there were also like a lot of protests. Another example was at Wasser College, where they invited a Cornell University professor, law professor, to talk about free speech and why that needs to be defended from a legal point of view. There were like protests, and afterwards, the, some other leftist organizations leaked all of the names and the addresses and the faces of the students who organized that to the whole campus and trying to trying to denounce them. And that is that is really 
a bad sign because then people don't want to talk to one another and just shut them down. Because I think the main tool they're using these days, um, let's they as the new left, is denouncing people and trying to ostracize them so that you don't even say something that might consider be hurtful to others. On the positive side, though, our students are very interested in facilitating civil discourse and talking to, quote unquote, the other side, to have conversations with Republicans or with the left and Democrats. And we have seen organically many events come up where you had different campus groups, Black Lives Matter, the College Democrats, the College Socialists even, Students for Liberty, organized like one event at Ohio State and also the University of Maryland, where they brought all of these different groups together and they civilly talked about um, the importance about free speech. And that way you actually see as a libertarian, oh, maybe this, this socialist or whatever is not like this evil human being that I envisioned, but I can actually talk to them and maybe on the margin convince them why their ideas are not conducive to a free society or a good society. Um, as everybody wants to live in it. Uh, Bob Bauer, he was an attorney in the Obama White House, he argues that our support for free speech should not hinge on our belief that uh, free speech will, in a sense, win out. That is to say that uh, by arguing about things that the truth will emerge. He says that our, our support for free speech shouldn't hinge on that. Absolutely. And I think Macuse is turning. Is it, but but it, it but it's it's an inter- but it's an interesting point because it, it, sh- what do, do people tend to think of speech as something that well it will produce the truth and that will be good and therefore I support it. There's a point of that, and Macuse is very explicit on that very point. He says that the truth only comes out if you allow only certain truth to be spoken. He is very explicit in saying that you need to curtail the the right of the right to voice their ideas. So that is actually the dangerous thing, that he is saying that you cannot rely on a democratic process or deliberative, a deliberate democracy where people exchange ideas, that the right ideas will come on top. He advocates for the philosopher king society, and you can imagine who would be in charge. It would be him and people who think like him. And everybody else who disagrees with his ideas um, would not be considered as that. And that is fundamentally a very dangerous idea, a very old idea, going back to Voltaire and many others. But that's that's what we're up against. With respect to uh, our current president, um, there have been some I, probably pretty significant moves to reduce regulatory burdens for uh, market participants. But at the same time, uh, a coarsening of rhetoric uh, and opposition generally to uh, free trade, uh, threatening not just people who are adversaries of the United States, but also people who have are longstanding allies of the United States. And it doesn't seem like there is a clear-cut uh, position that uh, students who are in favor of liberty uh, can take with respect to this administration. Yeah, it, it is – a really difficult uh, issue because we know that the president is flip-flopping a lot and you don't know what will come out of the administration at any given point. And therefore, it is, it's quite difficult, especially because psychologically, most people are very prone to, if they 
look up towards like one individual who is in charge that they just embrace everything what he or she says. And we're seeing this phenomenon. Like everything that Trump is doing is the correct thing and people are like very pro-Trump and people are very anti-Trump. It's not many not many people try to take like a subtle point of view. And I think you and I, uh, Caleb, have talked about that in the first podcast that we need good classical liberals like the Cato Institute, like Students for Liberty to point out if something good is happening in terms of like enhancing freedom in, in this country and around the world. And if something bad is happening, we should also point out over that. But people get too intertwined with personality and attach themselves too much to an individual and get all wrapped around, wrapped around um, with their own, um, how do I say that, with their own identity They connect that to one political figure, which then leads to the breakdown of, of civil discourse. And I know that Jonathan Haidt and other political psychologists have like really uh, importantly have documented that. That being said, in terms of the regulation, uh, I've done research on that and I've published a paper on regime uncertainty during the Great Recession. And I've criticized the Obama administration um, not specifically, but the, the policies that they had because it increased regulation so much more. And I showed a correlation between all of the flurry of regulations that came out of Washington, not only Obamacare, the PPACA, but also Dodd-Frank, and generally a much higher increase in funding for bureaucracies and especially bureaucracies who issue economically relevant rules. You saw a much higher... Uh, much higher uh, production of these rules during those times. And that directly corresponded to a business climate which was antithetical to growth. Businesses didn't want to invest. They were very, very skeptical about the administration. They lost trust in the administration. Now we have the lowest count of the Federal Code of Regulation since 1993, which is a good thing. So the it's, it's an imperfect measure, but it just measures the amount of pages that is in a document that measures, that tries to measure all of the regulations. We don't have like many more sophisticated ways to measure that because bureaucracies don't want to be particularly transparent about that, <laughs> as you can imagine. And this directly translates to few rules that affect the economy negatively. And we see that the business climate nowadays, if you look at data from the National Federation of Independent Businesses, is an all-time high. They are very optimistic, they want to invest, and they hope that this continues. That all being said, it is a little bit more complicated because we do know that Donald Trump and his administration has been very slow in appointing people to different bureaucracies. Once these people are appointed, it's much more likely that they will ratchet up some regulation, especially in, in the way or what you just have said about foreign trade and trying to curtail that, which would be to the detriment of the American economy for sure. So one can be cautiously optimistic about this and about business in the United States. And I've talked to many business people myself recently, and they're very happy also about the tax cuts, etc. But one needs to be careful because you don't know what's coming down the pipeline next. What should uh, young people expect if they attend uh, Liberty Con this year? It used to be the International Students for Liberty Conference, and now it's Liberty Con. What what do they ex what should they expect if they attend? Oh, thank you for mentioning the the conference Liberty Con. You can find out more at libertycon.com. And it's an event here in Washington, D.C., which takes place from the 2nd to the 4th of March, 2018. And we will have approximately 1,500 people there. And we have rebranded the conference because we have seen so many more people from all walks of lives and all ages attending the conference. It was, and it was for a long time, not a student conference anymore. And many people from the movement, but also general audiences coming to that. And many 
things that we have been talking about in this conversation will be echoed at the conference. We will have people from the left there, like the president of the ACLU will be there, Susan Herman. You can talk with her about free speech and we can challenge her as the audience about like some of the views that we don't agree on. We will have people from the right, like David Rubin from the Rubin Report, who will be also speaking there and engaging with the audience. We will have uh, a debate about socialism. We have a socialist actually there. And I applaud uh, that individual that he <laughs> comes to the Dragon's Den to discuss with our students and um, also Brian Kaplan on that very question. So there will be a lot of debate, a lot of interesting things. We hope you will also have stuff on cryptocurrencies and a CEO panel, and there will be many opportunities for students to find maybe internships, hopefully at the Cato Institute and other uh, other institutions. So it will be something there for everyone, and I certainly hope that the audience uh, checks it out at libertycon.com, and uh, I might see you there. Wolf von Lair is president of Students for Liberty. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.